are. Shall, shall we pray? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you really are our salvation. We thank you that all the glory belongs to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all that you have done for us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for uh, giving us the Bible to point us again and again to the Lord Jesus. We pray for our time as we open up your word together, the psalm we've just heard read, and we pray for the children as they head out to uh, their groups to learn uh, more of you. We pray you bless them and their teachers that they'd have a good time together uh, and they'd uh, be more and more full of joy in all that you have done for them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please keep Psalm 13 open in front of you, or turn back to it, I should say, uh, the reading that Michelle read to us, so Psalm 13. And it's great to be here. Thank you again for, for having me. It's a, a real privilege to be able to share God's Word and open up uh, the Psalms uh, with you. At Redeemer Folkestone, we've been uh, just doing a short series in the Psalms. Uh, it's our sort of aim uh, over a very long period of time to go through the whole Bible, not from beginning to end, but uh, over time to go through the whole of Scripture, including all of the Psalms, again, not in order, but uh, to, to do them one at a time. Uh, and we're just doing a short series at the moment in Psalm 13, 14, and 15. And I thought it'd be lovely to be able to just come here uh, this morning. Thank you for inviting me, Malcolm, and uh, to be able to share uh, something from Psalm 13 with you. So again, if you've got a Bible, you can see the words in front of you. Uh, that'd be really uh, helpful. Psalm 13. How long? How long? Now that is the heart cry, isn't it, of many a Christian when plunged into the overwhelming depths of sorrow and suffering and despair. It's a cry many of us uh, here this morning will have felt. It's a, it's a cry that many of you this morning may be feeling right now, and it's certainly a cry that all of us at some point or other in our lives will, will feel. Uh, how long? When there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel, no end in sight to what we are going through, and it feels as though God has abandoned us to the darkness. Illness, grief, sadness, death, and we cry, how long, Lord? Turmoil, heartache, distress in our bodies, distress in our lives, distress in our families. We cry, how long? Pain, loss, fear, exhaustion, and we find ourselves crying with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? And we don't cry that because we, we particularly want a time scale, <laughs> although sometimes we may feel it would help if we knew how long this particular suffering and sorrow will go on for, but we cry how long because we feel we've come to the end of our ability to endure what we are going through. I can't do this anymore, Lord, is the sense there. The darkness has lasted far too long, and we're on our knees now, and we're begging for light, for hope, and for salvation. And Psalm 13 is very honest with us about that experience. It wrestles with that very question. You see it there at the beginning of verse 1, how long, Lord? And it brings that cry to the Lord, and remarkably, it ends up with joyful confidence, which is not at all where you expect the psalm to end up when you begin reading it. But we can't jump to the end of the psalm any more than we can jump to the end of our own experiences of suffering and sorrow and despair. We can't jump to the end. We have to travel through it. 
And as we do so, this psalm gives us words to say and it gives us solid truths to cling on to when we find ourselves suffering and facing sorrow and despair. It gives us words to say, solid truths to cling to as we cry to the Lord, how long? But before we do that, before we journey through this psalm, I just want to point out two things that you'll notice there at the very top of the psalm. Uh, Firstly, uh, this is a song for the director of music. Now, it sounds a bit obvious to say this is a song. The psalms are songs. We probably uh, all know that. But it's important to remember whenever we approach uh, the psalms that we're we're looking here at a song. Uh, Redeemer in Folkestone, we just finished going through uh, Titus. Titus is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the young minister Titus. Uh, And in that letter, uh, the Lord teaches us very straight up truths about what Jesus has done for us and how we should uh, live in response to him. Uh, That's how he teaches us, very straight up, like we're writing a letter, we're receiving a letter. Psalms are different. They're they're poetry, they're songs, and they still teach us and instruct us, but they do it uh, in a very different way. And they do it by inviting us into the experience of the songwriter. You see, these psalms are are carefully constructed songs that that, people have put pen to paper in order to try to express something of how they feel and, and what they're going through. And they draw us into their experience, into their world, if you like. And as we enter into the the words and the poetry and the emotions of these songs, these psalms begin to get get to work in our hearts. They begin to change us. They begin to shape us. And they give us words to say. They give us, as it were, a song to sing when we go through similar experiences ourselves. So firstly, this is a song. Secondly, this is a psalm of David. Do you see that at the top there? I don't know about you, but when you look at a photo, say like a wedding photo or maybe uh, the selfie on your phone, uh, whose eye, uh, sorry, whose face is your eye immediately drawn to? If you're honest, is it not yourself? <laughs> Perhaps that's just me. <laughs> but usually our eye is drawn to ourselves. Oh, do I look okay? Yeah, I look okay. And then we begin to sort of look at the other people in the photograph. Now, we want to avoid that danger with the Psalms. Uh, The danger is that as we look at the Psalms, uh, my mind's eye goes straight to my experience of suffering. And I think uh, that this Psalm is all about me. But actually, the Psalms, and in fact, the whole Bible, is not first and foremost about me at all. It's first and foremost about Jesus. All the Scriptures are first and foremost about the Lord Jesus. And you see, this psalm plunges us into, not first and foremost our experience, but into David, King David, the great king of the Old Testament, King David's experience. But as a psalm of David, it points us to a greater king, and that's King Jesus, King David's greater son. In the Bible, that is very often the case that King David points us to King Jesus. So Psalm 13, supremely, is not about you or I first and foremost, it's about Jesus and his experience of sorrow and suffering and despair. He is the fulfillment of all the scriptures, including this songbook of the people of God. So that means that Psalm 13 gives us a window into what Jesus Christ experienced as he walked at this earth, our king, and his suffering. And that means that you and I need to listen in before we can join in. Remember, this is a song. Before we can join in, we need to listen in. And that will be better for us. So what I'm not trying to do uh, here at Grace Fellowship this morning is take the Psalms out of your hands and say they're not about you, but to put them in our hands in a richer way. Because when we realize that actually, first and foremost, this isn't about me, 
This is about my king, Jesus, and what he experienced. And when I grasp something more and see something more in this psalm about what he went through and what he experienced, then if I belong to him, if he's my king, then this psalm can then become my psalm as well. And I can sing it, as it were, with him. I can then join in, but I need to listen in first. So let's do that together uh, this morning. Let's listen in to this psalm of the king. And as we do so, what do we hear? Well, three things. Uh, Firstly, in verse 1 and 2, we hear a cry from the depths of sorrow, a cry from the depths of sorrow. It's there four times, isn't it, in verse 1 and 2. Take a look down there. How long? How long? How long? How long? And we don't know the precise circumstances of uh, King David's suffering here. But you can taste, can't you, something of the desperation in his voice as he repeats that four times. Uh, How long, Lord? How long? How long? How long? I'm at the end of my ability to endure this, is what he's saying. Uh, When will this darkness break to dawn? How long, Lord? Will you forget me, verse 1, forever? Now, David has already said in the previous Psalms that the Lord will never forget his people. So he knows that. He still believes that to be true. He hasn't lost sight of that. And yet he looks at his own situation, and it is as though the Lord has completely forgotten his chosen king. As though he's completely forgotten him. And not only forgotten him, but abandoned him. How long will you hide your face from me? Lord, it feels as though you've turned away. Instead of the joy and the blessing that comes from your face turned towards me, As I look up, all I see is the back of your head, is how it feels to David. Why have you rejected me? Why have you forsaken me? Now, if God has simply forgotten King David, then perhaps one day he'll remember him again. But for David, the suffering is so intense and so unrelenting that it feels like the Lord has not just forgotten about him, but has made a deliberate decision to to turn away from him and to reject his chosen king. And when it feels as though God has turned against you, uh, that is unbearable. How long? How long, verse 2, must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? David feels abandoned by the Lord. The dark clouds of suffering have hidden the face of the Lord from view. And so David is left here all alone with nothing but his own thoughts, sorrowful thoughts in his heart. And it's a daily struggle. You know, every morning the alarm goes off and every morning is just another morning of sorrow and suffering and despair. Will there ever be an end to days like this? And whilst he feels desperately alone, there is, in fact, another more sinister person in the room, end of verse 2. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Lord, I'm on the losing team, he's saying. Alone, forgotten, rejected, full of sorrow. And not only that, but defeated. My enemy has the upper hand. There are those who, who hate me, who want to see an end to God's chosen king. And they seem to be winning. I'm fighting a losing battle. I'm on the losing team. How long, Lord? How long? How long? How long? But I want us to notice something, even in just these opening two verses. And that that is this. Who is David speaking to here? 
Who's he bringing these questions to? Who's he expressing this sense of desperation to? Do you see it there? The Lord. He's still speaking to the Lord. He's still crying out to him. And what that means is King David here has not lost his faith. This cry, how long, is not a cry of unbelief. It's actually the very words of faith because he's still directing it to God. And David knows that if there is any hope at all, it will only be found in the Lord. And that's why he's still praying to him. More than anyone else, our Lord Jesus Christ knew what it was to be plunged into the depths of overwhelming sorrow and suffering and despair. And not only in his death, but also in his life. Isaiah tells us Jesus would be despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering or a man of sorrows and familiar with pain. Jesus knew what it was to live in a world of sin and sinners, a world of evil and darkness and death. And there is a time in Jesus' ministry when even Jesus cries how long. He's surrounded by sin and sinners and darkness and evil and death. And he cries out, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Being in this world of sin and sinners and evil and darkness and death and suffering, even the Lord Jesus cried out to his Father, how long? How long? And the Lord knew what it was for, for the greatest of enemies to be pressing in around him, for Satan and death to appear to have the upper hand. He knew sorrow. He knew tears. You know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Yeah, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. And where did he cry? He cried, didn't he, at the grave of his friend, Lazarus. He saw the reality of, of death. And as he faced his own death, as he looked to what he knew was coming, his own death on the cross, as he stared his own death in the face on the night he was betrayed, we're told he went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so intense was the sorrow that we're told being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus knew what it was to be plunged into the depths of overwhelming sorrow and suffering and despair. And on the cross, he cried out from the very depths of sorrow and suffering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. You see, David in Psalm 13 felt something of that. He felt forsaken, but Jesus actually was. Jesus actually was forsaken so that you and I never would be. I don't know if you sing uh, this at, at Grace Fellowship. I imagine you, you, you do, or at least you'll know it. He took our sins, didn't he? He took our sins and our sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone 
truly alone. In those hours of darkness on the cross, where Jesus cried, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing that true uh, aloneness so that you and I never will. Christ our King chose to take our sin and our punishment in our place out of sheer love and undeserved kindness, out of grace. It's in the name of your church, isn't it? Grace. Grace. He chose to be forsaken, truly alone in our place. And here's what that means for you this morning. Uh, There will be times when you and I feel alone. We feel rejected by God. We feel as though he has turned his face away from us. Uh, We feel he's forgotten us. He's hidden his face from us. We're wrestling with our thoughts and our sorrows day after day. Our enemy is triumphing over us. We feel all these things that David felt. There will be times when we feel that God has deliberately abandoned us and forsaken us. But because of Jesus, you can know that he never really will. He never really will abandon you or forsake you because of Jesus. Do you see the difference? We might feel it just as David felt it, but Jesus really was to restore our relationship with God. And that means that if if God is your father through Jesus, then he will never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that one of the most precious promises of scripture that God makes to his people? I will never leave you or forsake you. What a wonderful uh, promise we have in Christ. We will never go through what Jesus went through. His sufferings were unique as he suffered in our place to bring us back to God. And yet, as his people, we will suffer. We will suffer. And when we do, isn't it comforting to know that your king understands? He understands. When you cry, how long, your king remembers that sorrow can feel unbearable. He remembers what this feels like. He's not disinterested or detached or oblivious to it. The late pastor John Stott once said, in the course of my travels, I've entered a number of Buddhist temples. I've stood respectfully before a statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, serene and silent, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. The crucified one is the God for me. When you're plunged into the depths of overwhelming sorrow and suffering and despair, never forget that you have a God, you have a king who understands, who has been there first and then some, has walked that path and then some. And even if you feel what David feels here, alone and forgotten and rejected and defeated and full of sorrow, you can know that the Lord never really will forsake you if you belong to King Jesus. But what a wonderfully honest prayer. Just these first two verses are, this be- the beginning of this song reminds us, doesn't it, that it is okay to pray like this. 
It's okay. In fact, God gives us in his word an example of praying like this. And praying to the Lord, how long, O Lord, is not necessarily a cry of of unbelief and a lack of faith. As I said before, it can be the very cry of trust because I'm still crying out, Lord, to you. Well, as we continue to listen into this psalm of the king, what else do we hear? We've heard a cry from the depths of sorrow. Secondly, verse 3 and 4, we hear a plea for salvation. A plea for salvation. I wonder if you look down there with me, verse 3 and 4. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Again, do you notice how David has not lost his faith? What does he call God here? Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. God's chosen king here prays for the Lord to to, to basically do three things, to, to look, to answer, and to act. He's pleading for the Lord to look, to take notice of what he's going through. He's pleading for him to answer his heartfelt cry, the cry we've just heard in verse 1 and 2. He's pleading for the Lord to act, to to intervene in this dark situation. We felt something, didn't we, of the darkness in verse 1 and 2, alone, forgotten, rejected, defeated, full of sorrow. That's a dark place to be. But from the darkness here, David cries for light. Give light, he prays. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. I'm longing to see clearly again. Do you remember God's face was hidden by the mist of suffering? He felt all alone. And he's saying, give light to my eyes so I can see your face again. So I can see again. Unless you look, Lord, unless you answer, unless you bring light in this darkness, then that will be the end for me, is what David is saying here. There is no hope unless God saves. That's what David's saying. There is no hope unless God saves. There's no hope for God's chosen king unless God saves. And there's no hope for anyone else either. Unless the Lord acts, King David will die and he will stay dead and so will we all. But do you notice here as well how King David's concern is not just for himself. It's not just for his own life. His concern here is for the glory of God the honor and the reputation of God. Let's look at it again. Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Verse four, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now, isn't that a strange thing to say? It always feels a bit of a, I feel if I were to pray this psalm, I feel a bit uncomfortable about praying uh, those, those words. Kind of an odd thing to say, Lord, save me, otherwise other people are going to be rejoicing that, I've de- that I'm dead. What an odd thing to say, save me, otherwise other people are going to be rejoicing that I'm dead. But if you remember who's praying this, it's not so odd. This is God's chosen king. God's chosen king. The king that God chose. And he's surrounded here by not just one enemy, but multiple foes who would love to see an end to God's chosen king. And David is saying, Lord, if I die, if my enemies get their way, then it will be party time for them. It will be party time for the enemies of God and God's chosen king because God's king will be no more. And if God's king is no more, then we can live how we want. We can do as we please. 
And so David is saying, for your glory and your honor and your reputation, because you have promised things to me as your chosen king, because you have committed yourself to me as your chosen king, for your glory, act and save and deliver me so that that party that my enemies are longing for can never begin. That's what King David is praying. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ knew what it was, didn't he, to be surrounded by enemies, multiple foes, multiple foes, who wanted to see an end to God's chosen king. And if King Jesus' enemies had got their way, then it would be the biggest party ever, wouldn't it? The biggest party ever, because God's king would be no more, and then we could all live as we please. We could all live as we please. But the Lord Jesus' concern was for the glory and honor and reputation of his father. And Jesus was fully aware that if his father didn't look and didn't hear and answer his prayer and didn't act to deliver him from death, then what would happen? Well, verse 4, verse 4 would come to pass, wouldn't it? My enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Satan and all who wanted to see an end to King Jesus would be rejoicing, throwing the biggest party ever because God's chosen king, end of verse 3, would be sleeping in death, abandoned to the grave. Unless the Lord acts, Christ will die, Christ will stay dead, and God and his chosen king would be mocked. God's plan will have failed. And the mockery over the downfall of the king, the mockery, the party, the rejoicing, it began at the cross. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who crucified him also, those who were crucified with him also, heaped insults at him. The mockery, the gloating, the rejoicing, the, the party over the downfall of the king began at the cross. But isn't it wonderful news that the party was silenced on Easter Sunday morning. The party was silenced. That rejoicing was over. The gloating was done. As God's chosen king, the ultimate king, the king of kings, walked out of the tomb breathing, alive, risen. But during his time on earth, Christ knew his father would hear his cry and deliver him. Hebrews tells us that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. A thousand years earlier, God had committed himself to King David. But, but that commitment was not just to David, but it was to the greater king who would come 
from David's line. You might want to look this up later. Let me just read a little bit from 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, the Lord said to David, a thousand years before Jesus, he said to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So do you see what God is promising David a thousand years before? King David, God's chosen king, he's promising there's going to be another, even greater king, many years later, who's going to be an eternal king and have an everlasting kingdom. What a wonderful promise. But how can any of that happen if Jesus stays in the tomb? How can there be an eternal king if he's dead in the tomb? How can there be an everlasting kingdom if the king is dead? How can it happen if he sleeps in death, as we read in Psalm 13? But Christ knew his father would hear his cry and deliver him, not from the cross. Remember, that's why Jesus came, to lay his life down for us and for our sins. He knew his father would deliver him, not from the cross, but through death and out the other side through death and out the other side, uh, through the darkness of Good Friday into the lights of Easter Sunday morning. He knew his father wouldn't abandon him to the grave or let him sleep in death, but would raise him up in victory over all of his enemies. Now, for you this morning, uh, for all of us uh, here who trust in this king, in King Jesus. This means that you and I can have confidence when we face suffering, when we face sorrow, when we face despair in our, in our trials. And you know, even in the worst sorrow and suffering you and I will face, our own death. When you and I stare our own death in the face, we can have confidence that if we belong to the risen King, the one who God heard, and delivered through death and out the other side. We can have confidence that God will do that for you and for me. He will deliver us not from death, not from suffering, but through it and out the other side. Such was God's commitments, his covenant, his promises to his chosen king. And such is his commitment to you if you belong to King Jesus. He won't leave you in the grave either. He'll raise you up. As we continue to listen into this psalm of the king, we hear one more thing. We've heard a cry from the depths of sorrow. We've heard a plea for salvation. And finally, and, and remarkably, in these last two verses, we hear a song of joyful confidence. A song of joyful confidence, verse 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. David's confidence is in the Lord. He, he trusts in his unfailing love. The word there is the word for God's commitment, his commitment to his people, his commitment to his chosen king, and his commitment to his people, the people of the king. God's covenant love, his covenant faithfulness, in other words. And King David is saying here, Lord, I trust that not just in you, but I trust in your commitment to me as your king, and your commitment to your people, the people of the king. I trust in you and in your unfailing love. And not only do I, I trust, but I rejoice. My heart rejoices 
in your salvation. And that's remarkable because you remember we just heard about the, 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 the risk, the danger of all these enemies, these foes rejoicing and gloating and throwing this big party because God's king is no more. And David's saying, you know what? The rejoicing belongs to me. It doesn't belong to them. They're not going to be the ones rejoicing. I'm going to be the one rejoicing. The rejoicing belongs to God's king and not to his enemies. Verse 6, I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And you think, hold on a second, David. Just hold on a second. I thought you said the Lord's forgotten you. I thought you said that his face is hidden from you. I thought you said you have daily unceasing sorrow and that you're fighting a losing battle. And now you're saying, I will sing for the Lord has been good to me. And you think, David, really? But this is the beautiful thing about this psalm. David is so confident that the Lord will not abandon him to sorrow and suffering and death. So confident in the Lord that he begins to sing even though his circumstances haven't changed at all. So I don't think his situation has changed at all by verse 6. There are still enemies all around. There's still daily sorrow and suffering. I suspect verse 1 and 2 is still very much how he feels. How long, Lord? And yet he still begins to sing because he has such confidence in the Lord. At the very same time as being plunged into the depths of overwhelming sorrow and suffering and despair, God's chosen king at the same time knows that the Lord has been good to me, verse 6. Through the dark mist of suffering, God's king still believes in the goodness of God. Let me say that again. Through the dark mist of suffering, verse 1 and 2, he still believes in the goodness of God. He still knows that God has been good to him. He still knows that, that God is being good to him and will continue to be good to him and ultimately will never uh, abandon him. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And so he trusts, he rejoices, he sings. Isn't that true on an even bigger scale of the Lord Jesus? Remember, this is a song as we put this song, as it were, into a, into a much higher key. Isn't this true of the Lord Jesus? He trusted his Father. He rejoiced in his Father. And remarkably, he even sung as he approached the cross. Throughout his life on earth, the Lord Jesus would have sung, well, he would have sung, actually, these very psalms, including Psalm 13. He probably would have known the words off by heart. He would have known the tunes that we don't know anymore. He would have sung them as he gathered with the people of God. And he would have sung them knowing that actually I'm the fulfillment of these. I'm the king that these psalms are pointing to. But actually also I'm the one who's going to have to experience this more than anybody else. I'm the one who's going to experience this to the nth degree as the ultimate chosen king. He would have sung and even though he knew that he would fulfill this psalm, he still sang. He was not silent in the gathering of God's people. He sung to his father. 
And on the night that he was betrayed, after he'd shared the bread and the wine with his disciples, what is it that Jesus did? Just before he headed out into the night, just before he headed out into the deepest darkness of sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the deepest unimaginable suffering of the cross, what did Jesus do? And it's a little verse that you can almost skip over when you read the Gospels. We know about the Last Supper and the bread and the wine. And we know about the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross. But it's just this little verse in between where it says, after they had sung a hymn, then he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. After they had sung. And again, I take it Jesus was not silent, but he was singing to his father even as he headed into the darkness of Gethsemane and the cross. Such was his trust in his Father that Jesus still sang. He had joyful confidence in the Lord's commitment to his promised king and the people of the king. He knew that the rejoicing belonged to him and not to the king's enemies. And, and Jesus, more than anyone else, through the dark mist of suffering, he still believed in the goodness of God. He hadn't lost sight of God's goodness to him. And I wonder this morning, as we come to a close, I wonder, is it possible for us to feel something of that? Is it possible for you and I to feel that? Is it possible for you and I to know a deep sense of joy, even in our sorrow? Not, not just joy once the sorrow's over, and the sufferings are finished. Yes, there'll certainly be that. <laughs> Absolutely, there'll be that. But even in the midst of it, even in the dark mist of sorrow and despair and suffering, even when we're right in the thick of it, is it possible for us, like King David and like King Jesus, to still know something of that joy, to still be singing, even in the sorrow, to still have joy, even in the despair? to still have a very real sense of faith and confidence in the Lord, even in our suffering? Is it possible for us to rejoice and to trust and to sing, even when our hearts are crying out, how long? How long? How long? How long? Well, this psalm shows us that it is possible. But it's only possible if you belong to the king of Psalm 13. Only possible if you belong to him. I I wonder if you could think for a moment of those you know and love who are not yet Christians. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're you're not yet a Christian. It's wonderful uh, to have you here. Perhaps think of your own experience. Uh, Well, isn't it true that those you know and love who aren't yet Christians, they also cry how long? They also go through much of the same suffering that you and I go through in this fallen world. They also feel that sense of darkness and despair and hopelessness. They cry how long when they suffer, but they have no one to direct that cry to. No one to pray it to. No one to speak it to. No light at the end of the tunnel. No hope in the despair. No happy ending to the story. And the reality is there isn't unless you belong to King Jesus. Unless you belong to him. The good news of Christianity is that there is a God to cry out to. There is. There is a God to cry out to. A God who hears, a God who cares, a God who understands, a God who acts, a God who saves. 
who saves us not from our suffering. The good news of Christianity is not that you and I won't suffer. It's not that you and I won't face uh, sorrow and despair. It's not that you and I won't face even relentlessly dark days, daily sorrow. That's not the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is, is that God, like he did with King Jesus, will deliver you not from all of that, but through all of it, through the, the valley of the shadow of death and out the other side to glory and light and eternity with him. When the Apostle Paul and the, and the young pastor Timothy wrote to the Christians in Corinth, uh, Paul and Timothy described some of their own suffering uh, using words like this, troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, sleepless nights, hunger, dishonor, the list goes on. And yet they were still able to describe themselves at the same time as all of that. They could still describe themselves in this way, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. See how they go together? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And the thing is that, that, that Paul and Timothy and David and above all, King Jesus could be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Why? Because as we see at the end of this psalm, they all believed something. They all believed in the goodness of God. They all believed in the goodness of God. And so we can cry with this psalm, how long, and yet still be singing, still be rejoicing, still be trusting. You and I can take this psalm into our hearts and have these words on our lips. We can use this if we belong to King Jesus, as we look forward to an end to all the darkness, an end to the sorrow and the despair. And as we look forward to the light that is coming, Jesus is already there. We belong to him. We trust him. He's our king. I wonder if he's given us these words, solid words, solid truths, solid songs like this one to cling to as we look forward to meeting him. Should we pray? Father, we thank you that all of the scriptures point to your son. We thank you that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Psalms. We thank you that King David points to King Jesus, that this psalm is first and foremost about him. So, Lord, we pray you will help us to reflect on his experience of suffering and sorrow and despair, his cries of how long, his prayers for you to act and deliver, and also, Lord, his trust in your goodness. And we pray, Lord, as his people, those who trust in him, that you would help us to take these words into our hearts and have these words on our lips when we face similar things, when we suffer as your people, that even in the sorrow, we can be always rejoicing. Even in the suffering, we can be singing. Even in the darkness, we can be looking forward to the light that is to come. Help us, we pray, to cling to solid words like these that you have given us as we look forward to meeting our King face to face, when all sorrow will cease. In Jesus' name, amen.